0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org.
1: Shades. Um, so I'm going to be reading our scripture for today. We're in Psalm 81 today. Um, so I'll give you a chance to turn there if you want. I might also just have, I have two copies. Um, and so Psalm 81 says... Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you had just listened to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: In a book titled Our Secular Age, Ten Years of Reading and Applying, Charles Taylor, Colin Hansen, the editor, writes the introduction. And in the introduction, he says, you know what the most pressing theological question of our day is? You know what that is? The most pressing theological question of our day? He says, that question is, Does God get to be God? That's the question. Does God get to be God? He follows by writing that the answer to this question, for many self-described Christians, is no. (laughs) Only on our terms. Or, to put it another way, only in our image. I think he's on to something. I I think it's safe to say that on the streets, the question of our day is not the question of the reformer Martin Luther. What was his question? His question was, how is it possible that that sinners could be made right before a holy and just God? That question for Luther tortured him. I think it's safe to say, though, that that's not the question of our time. The question of our time is is not, how can a holy and just God pardon sinners? In our moment, I think there's been a judge swap. And it's no longer God who is the judge, but rather we sit in the judge's seat. We are not on trial before God, but rather God is on trial before us. The question is, will he prove right? Will he prove to be good according to our standards? And in our time, and even sadly in my own life and in the church, we find that a God that challenges the way that we see anything is quickly judged as unworthy, is quickly judged, is ill-equipped to lead the way to human flourishing. Hansen closes with a, with a powerful word. He says, you, you really only have two options in our time. Either God is for you on your own terms, or it's God that sets the terms. He says you really only have two options. Either God is for you on your own terms, or God sets the terms. Once again, if I can go back to that question that I want us to be thinking through this morning, and I want us all to be asking, does God get to be God? It's the question we must ask each day. So today... We are continuing our series in the Psalter, Planted by Streams, and we're in Psalm 81. And Psalm 81 is really an invitation this morning. What's that invitation? It's an invitation for you and I, once again, to get off the judge's seat. (laughs) It's an invitation for us to come before God and to see him not in light of our own notions and our own perspectives, but to see him as he's revealed himself in his word. It's an opportunity to come before our judge and king. So that's the invitation this morning as we walk through Psalm 81, for us to see once again who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. So, Psalm 81 can really be broken up into two parts. Praise and preaching. Praise followed by preaching. Or preaching in the context of praise. Uh, Let's start with praise. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Verses 1 through 5. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it's a statue for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, we have this call at the beginning of the psalm to this joyous and energetic praise. And it's situated within the context of a festival. And so in the context of this festival, we see this call to singing, to musical worship that would make a Baptist or a Presbyterian break out in hives, right? Right? My best friend who's Baptist would be very offended by that, but I grew up Baptist, so I feel like I can make fun of him, you know. What do I mean? Shout aloud. Shout for joy. Sound the tambourine. This possibly denotes dancing, all right? Now the Baptists are really out, okay? Blow the trumpet, signaling the beginning, a call to come together, to worship, to begin This feast. It's likely that this psalm is to be associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. So with the Feast of Tabernacles, all of Israel was required to live in in these tents made of branches. And, And why were they required to do this? Well, first of all, this makes me a little uncomfortable because it's a little too close to camping. And camping, for me, sounds like a terrible way to have a vacation. But that's just me. I think I've lost probably half of our congregation. I mean, for crying out loud, half of you are barefoot this morning. But it's just not my, my thing. So the Feast of Tabernacles, they're required to live in these tents made of sticks. And why? Well, it's not a vacation. It's, it's to remember. It's to remember how Yahweh provided for them in the wilderness. It's, it's this... It's this embodied, tangible way of remembering who he is by what he's done for them. The festivals for Israel were all about remembering and praising. Remembering and praising. So two things I want to draw out from this. First, remembering. Again and again in the scriptures read the scriptures, and you see over and over again God calling his people to do what? To remember, right? Remember, 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 remember God's acts. Remember his word. Remembering is crucial in the scriptures. If the people of God, if we at Shades Valley are going to be a a faithful community, a community of disciples of Jesus Christ in Homewood in this time, then we must remember again and again and again. That is why, as we gather today and every Sunday morning, our service is about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That is why we are here this morning to lift up Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to fix our eyes on him. And the older I get, the more that I believe that we cannot do this enough. We cannot do this enough. Secondly, remembering, gathering together to remember leads to praise. Let me quote Martin Luther again. I love what he says about gathering together as a body. He says, At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. If I can plead with you this morning, it would be this. Do not let not wanting to gather with the body keep you from gathering with the body. <laughs> this morning, you say, I don't want to come. I want to go get brunch. Or I want to have barbecue at 8 a.m. It's the 4th of July, for crying out loud. Right? Um, yeah, of course you don't want to come. <laughs> right? Right? Don't let that keep you from coming. We need to gather together as a body. We need to see and hear one another praise and worship Jesus. We need to open up God's word together and we need to remember again how good God is. He saved Israel from Egypt and Jesus Christ. He saved us from sin and death. Remembering leads to praise. A joyous and glorious praise. We must come together. We must remember. I was recently reading an article by Dr., or excuse me, I wasn't reading an article, that's a lie. I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Anthony Bradley and he's a professor at King's College in in New York and he was talking about how Sunday morning, how the corporate gathering of the people of God for parents is a discipleship opportunity. And and he was asking parents, parents, how do you engage on Sunday morning? How do you sit? How do you sing? Because do you realize that worship is not just taught, it's caught, you realize discipleship is not just taught, it's it's caught. Do you realize that your kids that you think could care less what you're doing are watching and learning? Right? The way that we praise, the way that we remember, the way that we gather together shows the worth of Jesus. Christ. And the worship of the Psalms is not this dry, rote, disconnected type of worship. It is an energetic, joyous worship, right? Um, I really don't mean to make fun of Baptists so much this morning, but it's just coming to me in the moment. So I feel like it's spirit-led. You can judge I can remember growing up in my church and together we were all singing these praise songs together and what were we singing so we raise up holy hands to praise the holy one how's everyone standing so we raise up holy hands to praise the holy <laughs> right um The Lord commanded Israel to go stay in tents for crying out loud. Our worship is to be embodied, right? And that matters. It communicates, not just for you and for one another. And let me just say, I don't say this to make fun of Baptists, right? And I'm not saying this to try to conform us all to this monolithic vision of what worship should look like for each of us. Why do I say it? I say it simply to remind us what we're doing this morning. And what are we doing this morning? We are gathering together because if God is going to be God, then we must be a people of praise. And if we are going to be a people of praise, we cannot do that on our own. own, We must come together and do what? Remember. Remember how good Jesus Christ has been to us. Oh, he's been good. Okay, I said the first part was praise and the second part is preaching. The second part is preaching. And I think it's important to note that this preaching happens in the context of this joyous, energetic praise. In the, in the context of the people gathered, and, and shouting, and, and remembering who God is, right? And so it, it might surprise us as we get into the psalm to see that in the context, which is this joyous, exuberant praise, right, um, that the sermon is a word that confronts. It, it, yes, it's a word that comforts, but it's a word confronts. And it's a confronting word to the people of God. And it's, it's a good reminder that as we come together and praise and worship God, it's not just having everything that we already believe and think about ourselves reaffirmed, right? How often are you sitting in a sermon and the pastor says something and you go, so-and-so really needs to hear this? Right, it's. I mean, I do that all the time. Um, in the context of the sermon, in the context of preaching, in the context of worship, this is meant to be a place where we get off the judge's chair and we open up our hearts to be examined so that God can transform us because this is for our good. It's for our good. So what I want to do, with the rest of the time that I have, is I want to point out three things that the Lord reveals to his people in this sermon that's given by none other than Yahweh himself. Okay, first, what's the first thing he reveals? First, he reveals to them their own hearts. Look with me at verse 8, verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Verse 9. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. God. Now, from the beginning, Israel prefers idols, right? Um, The golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai is just a tragic foreshadowing um, to what will be the rhythm of the people of God, and sadly, the norm, and that is idol worship. Idol worship, Recently, I was reading a little book by Peter Lighthart on the Ten Commandments, and I found his section on idolatry to be so thought-provoking and so helpful. So, Lighthart points out that the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, literally says, there shall not be for you another God before my face. Literally says, there shall not be, make sure I get that right, for you another God before my face. Why is that significant? Well, Lightheart argues that what's going on in that verse is that it's not just talking about ranking. Uh, There shall be no God uh, higher than me, right, higher to me. It's not just, uh, ranking, but it's also what? Position. What's that mean? Uh, there shall be no other God in my vicinity." This is Yahweh speaking. So why do I point that out? Not just ranking, but vicinity. right? Why do I point that out? Well, go to Second Kings with me. And look at what Manasseh does. What does he do? In 2 Kings, Manasseh places a false god where? Right in the temple. Right in the temple. Right in the presence of God to worship. Right? I mean, think about that. My middle school basketball coach, Coach Keys, would say, that's a bold strategy. I mean, just a defiant strategy right? Move by Manasseh. Now, of course, Israel wasn't allowed to worship idols outside of the temple either. You go to Ezekiel 14, and you see that Israel's elders built shrines for idols where? In, in their hearts. Yeah, in their hearts. And so the picture there is everywhere that they go, their idols just go right, with them. Has, has anyone seen that Apple commercial tracked? The guy's going around to these different stores, and the people at the store follow him, and they're all looking at his data, and so by the end of it, he's surrounded by a bunch of people in his room, and, and then a little line comes up, and it goes, choose who tracks your information, right? I mean, it's just a horrifying reality, <laughs> but that's kind, of the, that's kind of the picture, right? Wherever Israel goes, there are just swarms of idols, Just go with them in their worship. Okay, so so what does this mean to us? Well, think about it with me. When Jesus comes into our heart by the Spirit, our bodies are consecrated to be what? Temples. Temples. So what does that mean for you and me? That means that our idols before the face of God are just as blatant as Manasseh, who went and set up an idol right in the temple. Phew. It's heavy. It's heavy. Lightheart turns to us next in the book, and I really think what he says is helpful in thinking about our own idolatry. He says, when you and I, when we tremble before other judges tremble before other judges and hope in other saviors. When we pile our sins on anyone but Jesus, idols occupy our heart and take control. So what does this look like? Do you fear the opinions of others? Are you paralyzed by worry about how your father or mother will evaluate you? You set up an idol, a substitute judge, Public opinion, a perfectionistic father, a hypercritical mother. Have you ever thought, if we only had more money, then our lives would be happy. If I could only get a better job or enjoy a flawlessly decorated home, life would be good. You're looking to a counterfeit savior. Money, success, comfort. Here's one that I need to hear. When you're cornered, Do you lash out and blame others? Do you have so much trouble admitting your sins that you scapegoat your wife or husband, your parents, her children? Or do you flagellate yourself for your failures or perceived failures? Do you just continue to beat yourself up and beat yourself up and beat yourself up? It's idolatry. We are dumping our sins on scapegoats or we're treating ourselves as a type of savior. Whew. No one or nothing else was created to be the definitive judge in your life except Jesus Christ. No one and nothing was created to be the savior in your life other than Jesus Christ. Christ, only He is worthy of that, and so the question again is: Will we let God be God? Okay. Secondly, the second thing that Yahweh reveals in His sermon, Jordan, did I leave my water bottle by you? I'm not going to pass out. This is, I need to, I need to say this out loud, but I just, I have something in my throat. Okay. Retraining my body. Yes. Got the water bottle. We're back here. Everything's okay. I'm safe. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. First, Yahweh reveals Israel's idolatry. And secondly, he reveals his discipline. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. One commentator says something very powerful about these verses. He says, for God to give his people over to their stubborn hearts is the greatest and most fearful of punishments. For God to give his people over to their stubborn hearts is the most fearful of punishments. An Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross, says that here it means that the Lord ceased working with their stubbornness and released them to live according to their own devices. It's like God lets his hands off the reins. It's not a good picture. And I actually think this psalm, with its placement within the Psalter as a whole, with its placement in book three, can actually speak to Israel's idolatry. And so in book three, you have all these laments of Israel asking, Why, God? And it's clear that some of these laments are related to the demise of Israel to the separation of the kingdom, to the downfall, to the destruction of the temple. And so there are all these laments. And then you get Psalm 81, right in the midst of book three. And it's almost as if Yahweh is answering his people and saying that exile is not because I've been unfaithful. Exile is not because I've abandoned you. Exile is because of what? It's because of your idolatry. It's... God's discipline. Like the prodigal son, Israel was treated like the stubborn child that had to find out for themselves that they could not make it without God getting to be God among them. Yet, even in the midst of God turning his people over to himself, even in the midst of God sending his people into exile as an act of discipline, his heart is what? their redemption, right? His heart is that they would wake up. The the late author David Foster Wallace, I think said it really well when he talked about the destructive power of idolatry. Listen to what he says. It's dead on. He says, if you worship money and things, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will feel ugly. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud. Worship these things and they will destroy you. We know the reality that we become what we worship Lightheart points out that idolatry for Israel, these statues, they're dumb. They can't hear. They can't speak. They are lifeless. And so to worship these idols makes Israel what? Dumb. Dumb. <laughs> and it destroys them. It destroys them. Now, I, I don't know where you're at when I talk about God's discipline. I imagine that for some of us, God's discipline is like that room in the house that we haven't really decorated and we put all our junk in. I mean, we don't do this, but I'm talking to you all, right? Um, It's there, we know it, but we kind of are just gonna close the door and, and not think about it because we really don't know what to do about it, right? But what if we think about his discipline in the light of Israel's idolatry? and the destruction that it brings on them in his creation. What if we think about his discipline in light of Hebrews 12, 6? For those the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines. Yes. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not, what? Discipline. What if God's discipline is actually evidence that he loves us. And and what if God's discipline is actually a good word that in the chaos and insanity of all the suffering that we experience in this world, God is actually doing something. That it's not meaningless. That nothing is meaningless. And that he will use it to sanctify his people and to weed out the behaviors and the posture of a heart that will destroy them. Isn't God good? Isn't he good? Okay, finally, the last thing that I want to point out that the Lord reveals to his people in this sermon is he reveals, reveals his heart. He reveals his heart. And despite Israel's unfaithfulness, It should shock us that God's heart has not changed towards them. Listen to him throughout the psalm. Listen to his heart. Don't just brush over it quickly. Hear, verse 8, hear my people, if you would but listen to me. Verse 10, open your mouth wide and, and I will fill it. Verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Verse 16, The Lord desires to feed his people with the finest wheat. He desires to satisfy them with honey from the rock. The Psalms ends not in a place of of judgment but in a place of hope with the Lord saying if his people would but turn from their idols then he would lavish them with his best care. He would He would kill the fatted calf and he would have a party. He would give them his best robe. Will you stop and see God's heart for stubborn, unfaithful people? Do you see his heart for stubborn, unfaithful people even after generation after generation after a generation of unfaithfulness, his steadfast love has not changed. It's not changed. And in his loving discipline, out of his steadfast love, he desires that they would turn. He, he desires that they would come to know him. There is a verb that is used five times in the Psalms. Do you know what that verb is? Do we know what a verb is? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. A verb five times used in the psalm. What's that verb? Listen. Listen to me. It's, It's a key theme that Israel would remember. Yes, they would listen to his voice, to his word. But, I mean, think about it. Where is listening hope? for a people who continue to have deaf ears, for a people who continue to be unfaithful. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, the story is just one generation after the next having deaf ears. They, they never hear. So where can there be any hope that they will hear and they will turn so that they can hear and experience and see the lavish grace and care of God. Where is hope to be found? Well, it's not to be found with them. It's to be found where? In the heart of God. Fast forward to the baptism of Jesus, and we hear the divine voice say what? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the obedient one. Jesus is the obedient Israelite who listens. Jesus is the obedient Israelite who loves the Father. Jesus is the obedient Israelite who walks in his ways and follows his ways. He's the obedient Israelite who loves God. The disobedience of Israel is to be sat right next to the obedience of the Son right next to it. Robert Godfrey says this, Jesus perfectly followed so that his people would have complete and perfect salvation so that his people would be able to feast on all that God has laid before them and prepared for them. In light of everything I've been saying It was great to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and to read this verse. Um, You were ransomed. This is talking to the church. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ah. You were ransomed. By what? By a perfect sacrifice. By a perfect and complete sacrifice. I'll conclude with this. I, I love what John Calvin says when he says that for those of us who have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, who are found in Jesus Christ, we receive a double grace. That's how he frames it. And so he says, we receive the grace of justification. What does that mean? Being declared right before God? being declared just, not by our obedience, but in light of Christ's obedience and his righteousness. But that's not the only grace we receive. We also receive the grace of sanctification. And what's that? That's the grace that God is by his Holy Spirit throughout our life, through everything that happens to us, conforming us to his Son. How can he do this? Well, he's given us new hearts, not hearts that were hard like the israelites in the wilderness not hearts that were hard like israel that was led into exile but hearts that can receive and hear his word because they are hearts that have been united to his son and therefore have been brought into relationship with him. Calvin didn't bring up adoption when he was talking about the two graces, but we can continue to talk about the grace of God because we can also talk about our adoption and how we call God father in Jesus Christ. We've been adopted sons and daughters. We've received an inheritance greater than anything else we can fathom, not because of our obedience, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our ability to get it right, but nonetheless, we can drink from the fountain of God's continued grace till we see him face to face. Why? Because Jesus Christ was faithful. And in him, we've been made holy. Jesus Christ is good and kind. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And so we gather here once again, not for me to get up here and for me to say, hey, try harder. Um, Don't sin so much. Do better. How's that working? It's not. We come to remember who God is. and We come to remember what he has done for us through his son. So we live into our new identity as daughters and sons. And as we remember him, we are filled with praise. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ who is more beautiful and more glorious than anything we can ever imagine. And as we do that, God draws us closer to him and he's going to be doing that for the rest of our day. So we come, we remember, we praise him.